Welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. My name is Zach Adams, and I pastor a church located just outside of Athens, Georgia. The name of the church is Calvary 316. If you're a local, come check us out. Come hang out with us one Sunday. Our service is at 1030. You can learn more about the church, how to get there, etc. by visiting the church website, which is calvary316.tv. We're located off of Highway 316, hence the name. Regardless of where you're listening, I do hope you stay with me over the next hour as we seek to do something important, and that is deconstruct the negative perception that the world has of Christians by boldly and brashly discussing things that are relevant, relevant topics in an honest and genuine way. One of the most important aspects of the Outlaw Radio Show, one of our convictions, um, is a sincere desire to hear from you, the listening audience. We want to connect with you, and there are several ways that you can do this. You can email us. Our email address is info at outlawradio.org. Uh, you can also reach out facebook.com slash the radio outlaw. Or if you're into Twitter, our handle is at radio underscore outlaw. If you have any questions about anything said on the show, if you want to challenge an opinion that you don't like, if you want to submit topics for me to address in future episodes, literally nothing is off limits. If you've listened for any period of time, you know that's true. Uh, please, man, reach out. Today's episode is going to be a bit different than anything that we've done. A lot of times, if um, if I'm going to interview someone, uh, the mechanism for that is twofold. Uh, if someone has an interesting story that I'm wanting to incorporate into the show, uh, I'll either have them in studio, uh, that's one way, or we have a few remote studios uh, that they can drive to. Um, and we can record there over the phone, or if they're not able to get to one of our studios, uh, then they're able to just, we'll just do a call in the, the quality of the audio is not as good if you're in studio, but at the same time it, it works. And so, uh, we take advantage of, of those type of things. Today's going to be different. Uh, a dear friend of mine, his name's Paul Hammontree, he pastors uh, Calvary Christian fellowship in Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana. He's a good man, good guy. He's gone through just this terrible thing. Um, I invited him recently uh, to come and share his testimony, his story uh, at my church, Calvary 316. And so what I'm going to do, instead of having Paul in studio or remotely, uh, I'm going to play some of the audio uh, from what Paul shared at Calvary 316. And so with that, guys, if you queue it up, we're just going to dive right in here on the Outlaw Radio Show. Well, he shared, I uh, moved out from California to Baton Rouge, Louisiana in 2005. We went from Southern California to Southern Louisiana. Now, I don't know if you've been to either of those places or both of those places, but there's a little bit of a culture shift between Southern California and Southern Louisiana. They both have Southern in the name, but a little bit different culture in those two places. And as we got there, there were some things that uh, kind of stood out to me to, that made me aware that I was in a different place, in a, in a different culture. And one of the things that stood out to me were signs that I saw. I would see these signs around town. One was church signs. I didn't see a lot of these in Southern California, but they're like these church reader boards where they change the message on the sign. And I remember seeing this sign. It said, Revival Next Week. And it, it struck me. I was like, Wow, they know when revival's going to come, and like they can schedule it out and put it on their calendar. That's amazing. And then I thought, why are they waiting till next week? Why don't they have revival this week? But anyway, I realized I was in a different place. Another sign I saw one time I was driving out this old country road, and I saw this sign for real. I saw this sign that said, fresh possum meat. And I was like, wow, I you know, we don't eat possum back in Southern California. I knew I was in a different place. And a third sign that I saw, it was at the end of my road. I saw it every day when I pulled out from my house. It was a sign that said, dirt for sale. And I thought, what kind of weird joke is this, dirt for sale? But after I lived there for a while, I started to realize that this wasn't a joke. That in the swamplands of South Louisiana, we actually sell dirt. Dirt is worth something in South Louisiana because of all the water. Well, a couple of years after I had lived out in South Louisiana, I was back in Southern California. I went to a conference out there. And we were driving from the airport to the conference center, kind of through the desert. And there were all these, these big dirt 
mounds everywhere. And I had this thought. I thought, man, if I could get a dump truck <laughs> and fill it up with dirt and drive it back to Louisiana, I could be rich. Because, see, to most people, dirt is something of no value. Dirt is, is something that gets in the way. Dirt is something that's a problem. It's something that's annoying. It's something you want to get rid of. It's something you want to wash off your body, wash it off your car, sweep it out of your house. But to us in South Louisiana, we have found that dirt is actually worth something. Well, this is what I want to do with us in our time here this morning. I want to help you discover how dirt can be worth something. But I'm not talking about dirt. What I want to talk to you about this morning is the topic of suffering. Suffering. See, to most people, suffering is like dirt. It's of no value. It's a problem. Suffering is annoying. Suffering is something to avoid or to get rid of if it comes into your life. But I believe, and I'm going to present to you this morning, that for us, as followers of Jesus Christ, we can find suffering to actually be worth something. This is a lesson that I learned about four, almost five years ago now, back in October of 2014. I was having some sinus issues, and I was going to an ENT doctor to deal with a sinus infection that I had. And Gave me some antibiotics, they didn't work. Went back a couple weeks, gave me some other antibiotics, they didn't work. So he decided to do a little look up through my nose there and, and see what was going on. And he said he found some polyps. And he told me, he said, don't worry about it. I'm going to take a little biopsy of this, send it away. He said, I've been in practice for 30 years. He said, this isn't a big deal. Might require a little bit of outpatient surgery or something, but don't worry about it. So they sent it off and I went back a week later, and I sat in his office, and as he came in, he came in with a couple nurses, which he usually didn't have with him, and I thought, uh-oh, he's got backup. <laughs> I wonder what he's going to say. And he said those words to me that you never want to hear a doctor say. He said, you have cancer. <laughs> I'm sorry. This, uh, just please be patient with me. Sometimes this uh, gets me a little choked up. He said, you have cancer, he said, but uh, uh, we have no idea what kind it is. And so we're going to have to send you to a specialist in order to, to look into it a little bit more. Send me to a specialist. They performed more tests, and I got the diagnosis. I had something called sinonasal undifferentiated carcinoma. They give it the acronym S-N-U-C. They call it SNUC. And they said it's fitting because this type of cancer sneaks up on you. It shows up out of nowhere, and it grows very quickly. It's a very rare cancer. Less than 1% of all cancers is this type of cancer. But it's very aggressive, and it's very deadly. What I learned was I had a tumor just a little bit bigger than a baseball inside of my sinus cavity. I grew up playing baseball. I played baseball in college. I love baseball but I don't want a tumor the size of a baseball inside of my sinus cavity. It had already uh, destroyed the lining between my sinus cavity and my eye. And it had grown into my eye socket. It was pushing my eyeball, my left eyeball, off to the side and it had wrapped around my optic nerve. It was destroying the, the dural lining to my brain and growing up into my brain and attacking my brain. It was touching my cortex, and it was also touching my carotid artery. The specialists told me that they had no idea how to stop this cancer. She said that she needed to discuss it with some other specialists, go to what's called a tumor board, maybe some of you are familiar with that, and discuss that. And so I left her office that day, and I went and I, I sat in my car, and I prayed. And I didn't pray that I would survive because that looked very unlikely at that time. What I prayed for is that, that God would care for my wife, my children. It was the day before the, my oldest son, Austin, that I was referring to earlier. It was the day before his birthday. And I had to go home and tell my family about this cancer. 
And I prayed that, that God would just give my family the ability to handle this news. And God answered that prayer. He did. My family was, was super strong. And, and so we prepared to face this battle. My doctor, believe it or not, she suggested that I go home and Google it to find out more information about this cancer. And so I did. I Googled it, and I discovered some things. I discovered it said that there's only a 7% chance of survival. I wasn't a great math student, but I was able to do it, and I thought, well, that's 93% chance of not surviving. Said that there was an average of 10 months, an average of 10 month lifespan from the time of diagnosis. And I found this in the Journal of Nature's Natural Science, Biology, and Medicine. It says, despite aggressive therapy, surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, outcome has remained dismal, with the average survival time being less than one year after diagnosis. My doctor called that evening and confirmed all of those facts to be true. So a few days later, we went and we met with a surgeon, and he shared the plan. He said first we would do surgery. He was going to attempt to perform the the surgery endoscopically, which means like going up through the, the nose with a scope. But because of the size of the tumor and because it had grown into these different areas, he said chances were that what they were going to need to do was do something called lift the hood, which is where you get cut from ear across your scalp or your forehead to your other ear. They pull your scalp back and they go in that way to remove the tumor. And he shared with me because the tumor had wrapped around my left optic nerve in order to get clear margin that he was going to have to remove my left eye and he was going to take some tissue from my thigh and put it in that cavity there and, and, and close up that cavity. I guess that would give me thigh eye, I guess. I don't know if that's a... And he shared, because the, the tumor was touching my cortex and my carotid artery, that this was a very, very touchy surgery. Any slight mistake with that knife would mean certain death. So he wanted a neurosurgeon involved in, in this part of the surgery. So he sent us the next day to the best neurosurgeon in our area. And this guy, my wife and I are sitting in his office, and this guy, he walks in, and he looks at me, and he said, why did Dr. Nuss send you to me? I said, I don't, you're a neurosurgeon, I need neurosurgery. Like, you know, I think this is why. He said, you don't get it. He said, There's, I looked at your file, I can't do anything to help you. And he called my surgeon on his cell phone in front of me and my wife, and he said, why did you send this guy to me? I can't do anything to help this guy. And according to this neurosurgeon, I was going to die. There was no hope. So if we went home and shared that news with our children. And my oldest son, again, Austin, he just got up and he walked into his bedroom and I could hear him in there just sobbing. And I went in and sat with him. We cried and, and prayed together. Well, the next day we went back and we saw the original surgeon and he remained positive. I, I mean, he looked like he morphed into Clint Eastwood to me. He was said, if he's not going to do it, I'll take care of it all myself. And I was like, all right, man, let's go for this. He said that first they would do surgery, then they would do radiation and chemotherapy. And again, he made it clear they didn't know how to stop this cancer. So he said, we're going to come out with all guns blazing. You got your eat, pray, and shoot. That's what he, he said. We're coming out with all guns blazing. He said, we are going to treat you in a way where we're going to hang you over the edge of death and we're going to pull you back right before you die. He said, it's going to hurt so bad, you're going to wish that you were dead. Again, the attitude was there was really no hope of survival, and so they were just going to do all they could to try and stop this cancer. Well, the surgery date arrived. I remember laying there as I waited to fall asleep in that bed thinking, you know, I might die in surgery. This may be the last few minutes of my life. But God had a different plan. I, I hope you know those two words, but God. Because God can do miracles, but God. When I woke up after surgery, I discovered three things. Number one, I discovered I was alive. <laughs> I wasn't in heaven. He had removed the tumor without damaging my cortex or my carotid artery. I also noticed, maybe you've noticed, that I still had two eyes. He didn't have to take my left eye like he thought he was going to have to do. 
And number three, he was able to perform the surgery completely endoscopically without having to lift the hood. Eight hours, he went up there and he would slice a little bit of that tumor and pull it out. Eight hours of doing that. (laughs) It's the first time in my life that I was thankful for my big nose. (laughs) I I remember, you know, as a teenager looking in the mirror going, man, why did God give me such a big nose? And God's like, just hold on. It's going to come in handy one day. Well, that completed the first part of the process, the surgery, but there's still a long road to go. Next came radiation and chemotherapy, uh, both at the same time. And again, there was, there was little hope of survival, so they were just doing everything they could. So we went and we met with the radiation specialist. He came in and he, <laughs> my wife and I, we had some really interesting experiences with doctors through this process, but he walked in and he looked at me and he goes, he was carrying something and he goes, <sighs> he goes, you still have your left eye. And I said, yeah, yeah, he was able to save it. And he said, no, you don't get it. He said, now I have to be the bad guy. He said, radiation is going to destroy your left eye and it's probably going to destroy your right eye as well. And he was saying that there was a big chance following radiation, I would be completely blind. But he told us of this remote possibility, something called proton radiation. And it was more precise than the the regular type of radiation. It might save my right eye. It would still destroy my left eye, but it might save my right eye. He said there were only a few places in the country that performed this type of radiation. And insurance was very... Uh, they weren't big on approving this because it was super expensive. So we sent out prayer requests. I don't know, maybe some of you here were praying for us at that time. I know Zach was. And the insurance, they denied it once, they denied it twice, but then the third time again, but God, that third time they approved it. And so we were off to MD Anderson Cancer Center once a week. I'd spend the week over there to, to get this proton radiation in Houston, Texas. And they started the chemo first, And doctors were honest. They came out with all guns blazing. They gave me the most potent chemotherapy uh, available, two different types of of medicine or poison, depending on how you look at it. Uh, That chemotherapy, I experienced heavy side effects. I became anemic, uh, massive fatigue. I was just, I couldn't get out of bed. I lost 50 pounds, just wasn't able to eat. Then the radiation on top of that chemotherapy at the same time, the radiation created numerous painful issues, uh, burned the skin on my neck and my head. My eyes stopped producing tears, scratching my corneas, burning my eyes uh, has uh, really destroyed a lot of my vision. My saliva glands, they still to this day, I don't go very far from a bottle of water because they don't work properly anymore. That constant dry mouth at the time with the chemotherapy created, if you've ever had a canker sore, uh, my whole mouth and throat were filled with canker sores. Uh, Super painful. Because of all the pain that I was experiencing, they gave me a bunch of pain medicine, massive amount of pain medicine. Uh, The pain medicine messed with my head, Uh, just on so much different pain medicines, oxycodone, fentanyl, all these different high-dose medications messing with my head. And during this time, I remember experiencing incredible fatigue, just many months I I could only lay in bed, Uh, excruciating pain, even the massive amounts of pain medicine they were giving me uh, didn't cut all the pain, and mental instability. I, I just had this uncontrollable sadness. I would just weep and weep for hours on end. And I was going through some times of suffering. I was going some time through some times of suffering. Well, fast forward. After six months, the treatment was completed. They did multiple scans, and they had received incredible news. I still have the voicemail on, uh, saved on my phone that the doctor called, and he said, you are completely cancer-free. <laughs> All the cancer was gone. God healed me. Look, I'm supposed to be dead, but I'm alive. I'm supposed to be blind, but I can see. Both of my eyes work. They don't work great, but they work. I can't smell or taste anymore, but that comes in handy sometimes. (laughs) Like when Zach makes you steak for dinner. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sure it was good. I don't know, know, but I'm guessing it was. However, the, the treatment 
created lots of suffering. I went through and continued to deal with physical suffering, emotional suffering, mental suffering, financial suffering. You may not have experienced cancer, but you have experienced suffering. And I want you to know that there is no hierarchy of suffering. So many times I would talk with people after I was going through this and stuff, and they'd start talking about some difficult thing they're going through, and they're like, oh, but that's nothing compared to what you went through. But I want you to know this. All suffering is suffering. I don't believe that cancer is more suffering than sitting in traffic. I really don't. See, the word suffering is a noun. Suffering isn't something bad that happens to you. Suffering is an emotion that you experience when something that you perceive to be bad happens to you. And we all experience suffering in some way. But as I mentioned earlier, I believe as followers of Jesus Christ that our suffering can be worth something. Consider the Apostle Paul. When Paul first began following Jesus, Jesus said this. He said, I will show Paul how many things he must suffer. My name's Paul. I don't like to <laughs> relate to Paul completely because he ended up his life alone in prison, and I don't want to end up that way. But, but this is what Jesus told Paul. He said, I will show Paul how many things he must suffer. I don't know if any of you ever got, if you got saved through an altar call where you like went forward in a church or something and, and gave your life to the Lord. I don't know if the pastor told you that. He said, look, you are, your life now, you're going to suffer a lot because of this choice to follow Jesus. We don't talk about it a lot, but Paul knew that. From the very beginning, Paul knew he was going to suffer many things. Listen to Paul explain how much suffering was in his life. In Acts chapter 20, he said this. He said, the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. Paul knew this. He knew that suffering was waiting for him in every city that he went to. Now, that's enough to make a guy want to stay at home. <laughs> if you knew that every place you went, there was going to be suffering, Paul knew that. And yet, he was one of the most, tra most well-traveled individuals of that early church, wasn't he? Uh, how would that understanding that Paul had affect you? if you knew the rest of your life would be filled with suffering, how would you respond if that's what the Lord told you this morning? Well, maybe you don't have to imagine how you would respond because maybe you do think that. Maybe you do look at your life and you think, you know what, I just see the suffering in front of me. And I would ask you then, how are you responding to that? Listen to how Paul responded to that understanding going on there in Acts chapter 20. In the next verse, he says, but none of these things, that uh, awareness that in every city, the Holy Spirit was saying, chains and tribulations await me. He says, none of those things, that understanding moved me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, look, Paul's goal was not to avoid suffering. Paul's goal was to follow Jesus. Paul's goal was to finish his race, to follow Jesus even through times of suffering. That focus, saying, I'm not living my life trying to avoid suffering, but I'm living my life to follow Jesus, that understanding gave him the ability to have joy even during times of suffering. As I considered Paul's life, I realized that for myself, and maybe you realize for yourself, I needed to think more like Paul. Rather than trying to avoid suffering in life, what I needed to focus on was following Jesus even through times of suffering. If I did that, if that was my focus, then I could find joy even in the midst of suffering, and then I could discover how my suffering itself could be worth something. Well, the first thing I discovered about the worth of suffering is this. Suffering strengthens our relationship with Jesus. Again, consider the example of Paul's life. 
One time Paul went to Jerusalem. He was dying to get to Jerusalem because there in Jerusalem were so many of his friends who had not received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, as the promised Messiah. And he wanted so bad to get to Jerusalem and share with his friends, hey, I know who the Messiah is. It's Jesus. Let me explain to you why. And finally he got there and he, gets, and he starts sharing with his friends But they don't come to Jesus. What they do is they come to Paul and they try to rip him to pieces. They start beating him up. The Roman guards have to intervene and they take Paul into custody to protect him. And so things didn't go the way that Paul had hoped they would go when he went and shared Jesus with his friends. Maybe you can relate. But there Paul sits in prison and you can imagine how he felt. Things didn't work out the way that he wanted them to work out. He had been beaten physically. He's suffering. But there, in Acts 23, it says, The Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. Look, I want want you to see this. Jesus showed up in the midst of Paul's suffering. It was in his suffering where Jesus showed up and spoke to him. This is one of the reasons why suffering can be of great worth to us because Jesus shows up in the midst of our suffering. This was so real to the Apostle Paul that he would later write this in Philippians chapter 3. He said, oh, that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, a lot of Christians love that first part, right? The power of his resurrection. Oh, yeah, I want some of that power. I want to know Jesus more so I can, I can know that power of his resurrection. And that's great. We want to know that. We want to know the power of his resurrection. But do we also want to know the fellowship of his sufferings? A lot of people want to avoid the fellowship of his sufferings. But listen, there's a special fellowship with Jesus that can only be found in a time of suffering. If that's your desire, if your desire is like, man, I want to be close to Jesus, then i got good news for you. Suffering can be very worthwhile to you because suffering can increase your relationship with the Lord and bring you closer to Jesus. Suffering is something that we usually try to avoid. In today's message of the Outlaw Radio Show, Pastor Paul Hammondtree is sharing about his unique set of circumstances that brought about suffering that many of us can't even imagine. Come back in a moment for part two of the Outlaw Radio Show. Here's Zach Adams and a special message from Pastor Paul Hammontree on the Outlaw Radio Show. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. My name is Zach Adams. Today's episode is a little different than what we normally do. Instead of having Paul Hammontree, a good friend of mine in studio or via cell phone, uh, I recently invited him to come share his testimony with uh, the church that I pastor, Calvary 316. And, um, and so what we're doing is we kind of cut up the audio of the sermon and we're playing it here on the show. Uh, Paul's testimony is, is powerful. I remember... Um, when Paul got the diagnosis, uh, as, as he mentioned, Paul and I have known each other for uh, going on more than a decade. Um, I forgive him that he's an LSU fan. He talks about in the first, uh, the first half of the show how he moved from California um, to lower Louisiana, to Baton Rouge, and he is now a diehard LSU fan. So I give him props for the fact that he integrated uh, into his culture, but I'm a Georgia Bulldog fan and we're not... Uh, big fans of LSU uh, Tigers. Uh, that aside, Paul and I just always had this friendship. He's such a, a kind man. He's lighthearted. Um, as a matter of fact, I got to share this very quickly. Um, so I had the opportunity earlier this year to go to the Masters Golf Tournament. And I've spoken about that in, in the past shows. Um, and I knew Paul was a big fan of golf. Uh, he had reached out to me. He was like, hey, are you going to the Masters this year? I was like, I sure am. He's like, you dog. Uh, you're so lucky. Um, and so my wife and I, we were there, we were in the gift shop and I was like, you know, I'm going to buy Paul a hat. That brother's been through so much. I'm going to buy him a master's hat. So I did. I bought him this retro, really cool 
that classic green hat. Uh, I mailed it to Paul. He gets it in the mail, takes a picture, sends it to me. Totally blown away. Didn't know I was going to be doing it. And uh, and he, he asked, he was like, hey, what do I owe you for it? Can I send you a check? Can I send you some money? And I was like, Paul, don't worry about it. He's like, no, seriously, I want to send you something. Like, don't worry about it, Paul. And, and finally, he's like, man, I, I, I need to uh, repay this kindness in some way. And I was like, well, the Deep South Pastors Conference is going to be uh, the 2nd of September, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. What if you came in on the 1st of September and, uh, and taught for me at Calvary 316? And uh, I kind of said it jokingly, but he obliged. And then about a month out, he reached out again and was like, hey, I'm serious about coming. And I was like, that's wonderful. It's Labor Day weekend now. I'm serious about taking a break. And so Paul came and he shared his testimony. And then the first, the first half, as you as you listened, he really talks about um, the cancer, um, really what happened. So he sets the stage, and then he begins to get into the lessons that he learned, um, and I would even say is still learning um, through this experience. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just dive right back in to the sermon that Paul gave at Calvary 316 as he continues to share the lessons that he learned through suffering. So guys, go ahead and roll it. Well, in 1 Peter 4, I discovered two more ways to make suffering worth something. One is what not to do in times of suffering. The other is what to do in times of suffering. In 1 Peter 4, Peter writes, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happen to you. Uh, The thing not to do in times of suffering is do not ask why. When a fiery trial shows up, we need to, as Peter says there, don't think it's strange. Don't be surprised by this. When suffering shows up in your life, we need to resist asking why. Why am I suffering? Look, I don't know if you already knew this or not, but you may never know why you go through some suffering that you go through in your life. Job, uh, such a great example of a man who went through great suffering there in the Old Testament. When God spoke to Job later in the book of Job, you know, he never told Job why he went through the suffering that he went through. He never explained it to him. As far as we know, Job never knew, as long as he was alive on the earth, he never had an answer to why he went through all that stuff that he went through until he went to be with the Lord. That may be true for you, may be true for me, that there may be suffering that God allows into our life that we will never know why. So asking why I'm going through suffering can be an incredible waste of time and energy. Asking why is forgetting an important truth that Isaiah spoke to the Israelites. He told them in Isaiah 17, he said, You've forgotten the rock who can hide you. So your only harvest will be a load of grief and unrelieved pain. Isaiah was speaking to the Israelites and he was telling them the reason they were experiencing grief and pain is because they forgot about God the rock. Not Dwayne Johnson the rock, God the rock. The rock, what that speaks of is a place of safety, a place of refuge. He's like, because you've forgotten God, your rock, that's why you're experiencing all this grief and unrelieved pain. The people forgot this is who God is. Now listen, there's, there's a big difference here that I want to make sure I'm, I'm clear on. Not what God gives, but who God is. And there's a difference to that. Because a lot of times when we're going through suffering, we're asking God to stop the suffering, give us a refuge, you know, give us something. But that's not what we need to remember. What we need to remember is who God is, not what he gives us, but who he is. He is our place of refuge, not what he does in our life. No matter what suffering you experience, you can always find refuge in in God. But endless asking why, 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 all that creates is a load of grief and unrelieved pain. And asking why and spending all our time trying to figure out why will distract us from what we should be doing. What we should be doing when God allows suffering into our life. Peter goes on in 1 Peter 4 to say, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but 
let him glorify God, very important words here, in this matter. In this matter, meaning use the suffering, the suffering itself, to glorify God. Glorify God using that suffering. In times of suffering, what we need to do is we need to discover ways to glorify God in this matter. Rather than wasting time thinking about why is this happening, why is this happening, why is this happening, we need to stop doing that. We need to start saying, how can I use this suffering that I'm going through as a way to glorify God, to show other people who God is? How can I use this suffering for that purpose? So again, to discover how to do that, I look to Paul, uh, an, an issue of suffering that he experienced in his life to discover how do we glorify God with our suffering. In Acts chapter 27, after Paul left Jerusalem, he was on a ship headed for Rome as a prisoner. And I'm sure many of you know this story, but they were caught in a hurricane out there on the sea for 14 days on a sea in a hurricane. I don't know if you noticed, but Hurricane Dorian is like making this turn. I just like all these, all these prayer warriors on the East Coast are just going, get away, get away, get away. And it's like turning right away. But that didn't happen for Paul. They, they were in the hurricane for 14 days on the sea in an old wooden boat. They were going through some suffering. Well, there were three things that Paul did in that storm, in his suffering, three things that glorified God, three things that I want to, and I hope you do too, want to emulate in your life as you go through suffering. Number one, Paul continued to care about others. An angel came and spoke to Paul one night there, and in Acts chapter 27, this is what the angel said to Paul. He said, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Now that term, granted you, means that God has agreed to give you the request that you made. Which means this, that as Paul was going through suffering, as Paul was going through that storm and, and, and experiencing personal suffering, do you know what he was doing? He was praying for his shipmates. He was praying for the other people on the boat with him. And so when this angel shows up and says, God has, has agreed to grant you what your request was for those who sail with you, during suffering, it's natural to become self-focused, right? I mean, isn't that what happens immediately? When suffering comes into your life, you look at yourself. You become so self-consumed. You start thinking all about yourself, and, and certainly some of that may be necessary, but the more we focus on ourselves, this is what I discovered, the less joy I had. The more I thought about my own suffering, the more depressed I got. But whenever I could turn my focus outward and think about other people and care about other people and, and seek to love and serve other people, even though I was going through suffering, you know what happened? I had joy. <laughs> You know, caring about others glorifies God in the midst of suffering, and it makes suffering worth something. The second thing that Paul did there on that boat was he was real about his weakness. When the angel appeared to Paul, he said to Paul, do not be afraid, Paul. Now, you don't tell somebody that unless what? They're afraid. Well, Paul then went and he told everybody on the ship that this angel came and spoke to him. And he told everybody on the ship that the angel said to him, do not be afraid, which means he admitted to everybody on the ship that he was afraid. I think this is very important. In times of suffering, we need to be honest. We need to be honest and we need to be real about what we're experiencing. Pretending to be strong when in reality, we are weak or scared or afraid. That is dishonest, and that does not glorify God. Now, as I went through cancer treatment, I tried to be as honest and real as I could, post on Facebook, sharing with my church, because I was experiencing incredible fear and weakness. Even my faith became very weak during those times, and I wanted to be real about that because you know, God said this to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, my strength is made perfect 
in weakness. See, when we're honest, we admit our weakness. This glorifies God because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. When we go through times of suffering and say, I'm feeling weak, I'm, I'm, I'm scared, I'm nervous about how this is going to go. I don't understand why God is allowing this. And, and sharing that in our weakness, God can actually show himself strong. And when people see strength in us, when we're honest about what we're experiencing, God is able to show himself strong in that. And people see the Lord through that. And I know that's hard to, to believe sometimes, but it's true and it's real. And I would encourage you, when you go through suffering, be real about your weaknesses Being real about our weakness, that glorifies God in the midst of suffering, and it makes suffering worth something. And the third, last thing that I saw with Paul there is he sought to be an encouraging example. In Acts 27, verse 35, it says that Paul took bread, and he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food for themselves. Now, the storm was still going when Paul did this. The storm hadn't ended. It was still raging, but Paul knew people were watching him. Paul knew that the other people on that ship were watching him. So he sought to be an encouraging example. He thanked God, and he ate bread, and it says then the people were encouraged, and they ate as well. Look, the way that we live in suffering is going to be an example to other people. A lot of times people won't pay any attention to your life when things are going good. But when something difficult comes into your life, when a suffering hits your life, people are going to pay attention, especially unbelievers. You you profess this God, this all-powerful God, and this Jesus and this life that you've discovered and that you're walking in. And when you win the lottery and they're like, oh yeah, whatever. But when suffering comes into your life, they're going to watch you. They're going to watch you and see how you handle that. Suffering is an excellent opportunity to be a witness and be an example to people around us. And I want you to understand this. When suffering comes your way, a lot of times people think that God's upset with me, God's mad with me, and he's allowing this into my life to discipline me or something. But you know what? There's a lot of times when God will allow suffering in your life because he's looking at your life and he's like, I like the way they're living. I like the direction they're going. I'm going to allow suffering to come into their life for this purpose so that they will be an example and a witness to the people around them about this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And Paul gave thanks to God during the storm. He didn't give thanks to God for the storm. He wasn't like, oh, this hurricane's awesome. God, thank you so much. (laughs) It's done wonders for my hair. You know, he, he didn't thank God for the storm. He thanked God during the storm. And that encouraged the people around him. When we give thanks to God during suffering, it's an encouraging example to others, and it glorifies God in the midst of suffering and makes suffering worth something. Look, storms are going to come. Suffering is going to come. But when we go through suffering, caring about others, being real about our weakness, and seeking to be an encouraging example to other people, then we are glorifying God, and that makes our suffering worth something. I want to close with a story of something that I experienced a couple years ago. I go in for these scans periodically, and what they, I get the scan done on Monday. I get the results on Thursday. And so you have a few days there, because this type of cancer, they said if, it's com- if it comes back, it's a death sentence. And, uh, and so you go get the scan on Monday, and then you wait to Thursday to find out if you're going to live or you're going to die. It's great. Everybody should experience this. <laughs> But a couple years ago, I had the scan done on Monday. Results were coming on Thursday. It was Wednesday. At the time, I was still dealing with a lot of physical suffering, and I was really bummed out. I didn't want to suffer anymore. I was tired of fighting. I was tired of living like this, having to deal with this. I wanted the fight to be over. I, I wanted to die. I did. I wanted to, like, I, I'm secure in my salvation. I'm ready. Let's do this, you know? 
I wanted to enter into glory. Well, we have a midweek service, a Wednesday night service, and so I was there at the Wednesday night service. I didn't want to go, but I have to because I'm the pastor, so you have to go. And we were worshiping. Man, what sweet worship that we had here this morning. It's so beautiful. Worship's always been very important to me. It's very, been very powerful in my life. And, and during worship that night, I was singing these, these things to God, and, and it was like helping me kind of, my heart get into the place where it needed to be. And I, believe it or not, I was actually teaching through the book of Job at the time. <laughs> and I was in a section where Job said, basically, I can't handle the suffering anymore, I want to die. <laughs> and I was sharing with the people, I'm telling them, Look, Job was wrong there. You know, the suffering, God was using that for a purpose. You know, millions of people throughout ages have been blessed by the story of Job's life. We're thankful for what he went through and and the example that he is to us and the help that he is to us. Job was wrong. And, And those words were bouncing off the back wall and they were piercing my heart. You know, I was preaching to myself. Well, after service, I I was introduced to a visitor who was there for the first time, this older lady named Tabitha. And Tabitha she couldn't speak, and she had a tablet with her, and she was writing down a message. And she wrote down this message. She wrote, I have mouth cancer, and I saw my doctor today, and he told me that I'm going to die. And I asked her, like, was she at our church because she knew my story? And she just looked at me like, no, I don't know who you are. I don't know what your story is. She said she saw the sign out front, and she came in. And so I sat down with Tabitha, and I told her, I said, Tabitha, I, I had doctors who told me I was going to die, but I didn't. I told her that I understood what she was going through, the suffering that she was experiencing. And then I told her about her God, her Father in heaven, who loves her. And as I shared this with her, tears just started flowing down her cheek. Tears are about to flow down my cheek. And you know what? In that moment, my dirt became gold. My suffering became worth something. Well, you've been listening to Paul Hammontree share his testimony of suffering, this cancer diagnosis, and the lessons that he learned. And it's powerful. I'll let it lie exactly where it is. But I do want to add one thing. Paul told me privately that one of the great encouragements, one of his backbones to enduring and persevering through this particular trial was his church family. And so I just want to reach out to you, whoever you are, the listener. If you're going through a trial, if you're going through suffering, you don't have to go through it alone. And so I just encourage you to find a church, to plug into that church, to let them know what's happening in your life so that you can receive the support and encouragement that you need. Well, you've been listening to the Outlaw Radio Show. If you liked what you heard, I want to encourage you to do a few things. First, contact your local Christian radio station and tell them that you're thankful that they're carrying Outlaw Radio and programming similar to this in your community. These guys, it's a thankless job. They don't make a lot of money. It really is a ministry to your community. I like to refer to it as a seed-sowing ministry because you never really know. One man sows, another man reaps. You don't really know who's listening, how this is making an impact. Uh, The second thing I I would really encourage you to do is to visit our website, uh, outlawradio.org. We understand that if you're listening on the radio, in all likelihood, you weren't able to listen to this episode in its entirety. We get that. Uh, You're in the car for only so long, and it's hard to uh, stay planted there and listen uh, to a 52-minute broadcast. That being said, if you visit our website, outlawradio.org, from the site, you can easily access our podcast, uh, which is available on iTunes. It's also available Google Play, really anywhere you get your podcast. You can find it, search Zach Adams, or go to the website. You can listen, and this is what makes it cool, you can listen again to this episode in its entirety. So if you miss something, no big deal, you can go catch up. No problem, you missed the first half, go listen to the first half, missed the second half, missed the second half, no big deal. You can listen to it in its entirety, as well as all previous episodes of the Outlaw Radio Show. Very cool stuff. Finally, let's connect. Twitter, at radio underscore outlaw. You can send me an email at info at outlawradio.org, or you can follow us via facebook.com slash the radio outlaw. Once again, I'm Zach Adams, and I hope you join me again this time next week for the Outlaw Radio Show.
You've been listening to the one and only Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. As mentioned, if you like what you heard, be sure to connect with us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter or check out our website by visiting outlawradio.org. To listen again to today's show, access our daily two-minute broadcast or full-length episodes, check out the Outlaw Radio podcast, available on both iTunes and Google Play. Once again, don't forget, we want to hear from you. If you have questions, want to challenge something that was said, or would like to submit topics you'd like to hear Zach discuss on air, you can either email us at info at outlawradio.org, or you can leave a voicemail at 678-883-3316. Finally, programs like Outlaw Radio are wonderful tools God can use to change lives. But as with any ministry, there are expenses involved. First, if you're not tithing to your local church, you need to do so. And yet, if God has laid it upon your heart to extend your generosity above and beyond your tithe, we'd ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Outlaw Radio. Every donation ensures this show remains on your local station. To learn how you can become a financial partner, please visit outlawradio.org. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you join us again next week for the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. Outlaw Radio is a ministry of Calvary 316 in partnership with his productions.